Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm happy to say we have David Schimmelpenick Vanderoy on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Russian Orientalism, Asia in the Russian Mind, from Peter the Great to the Immigration. Of course, there was a time in Russian history before European contact in which the Russians were thinking neither about Europe nor about Asia. They thought of the people that lived to the east of them and to the south of them, most of whom were Turkic-speaking, as simply the Turkic-speaking people who lived to the east of them and the south of them. However, after the Russians were convinced that they were Europeans, and this happened roughly in the 18th century, they began to think of the east differently as the Orient. This is really the story that David tells in this wonderful book. It's related, of course, to the greater issue of Orientalism and its meaning. Many of the listeners to this show will be acquainted with Orientalism, the book by Edward Said. David engages that book and has some very interesting things to say about the applicability of the notion of Orientalism in the Russian space. And he also has some other interesting things to say about the origins of Said's own thought in Russian thought. So I would advise you to listen carefully to a point near the end of the interview in which he lays bare the roots of Saeed's notion. In any event, I really enjoyed talking to David today, and I think that you'll enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, David. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm fabulous. It's Friday afternoon. Uh, what could be better? Yeah, no, it's really great. Um, I should tell our listeners that we're talking to David Schimmelpenick van der Oy today, and David is in Paris. Is that right, David? That's right. Yeah. Um, well, I, I feel really sorry for you. That's horrible. Uh, David, has written a, <laughs> David has written a terrific book called Russian Orientalism, Asia in the Russian Mind from Peter the Great to the Emigration. I've just finished the book, and it's, it's absolutely terrific. It touches on a subject that I've thought about a, a lot myself because some of my very early work was on European views of Russians. This is a book about Russian views of people in the – well, I hesitate here because – they're in the South and in the East, and it's a little bit different in Russia. But in any event, it's a terrific book, and I encourage people to go out and buy it. David, why don't I ask you to begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, um, I guess the main thing to, to say is that I came to history in a rather roundabout way. Um, I have a very checkered past, which includes <laughs> 10 years as an investment banker in Toronto and the city of London. Um, a commission in the Canadian Armor Corps, uh, and work as a waiter in a fancy French restaurant in Chicago. Um, but um, my major actually was Russian studies, but back in those days, and this was in the 70s, when I was an undergraduate, I thought I'd become a diplomat. And then I learned um, through, my, through my military service um, that bureaucrats are intrins- intrinsically evil people, and I didn't want to be like them. Um, so by a roundabout way, I ended up in banking, but I, I realized that I really did not like banking at all. And I found myself around the late eighties in London, um, in the city doing stuff that I found tremendously mind numbingly boring, doing things like looking at the bakery sector in Belgium or the insurance industry in the Netherlands and things like that. Um, the pay was fabulous. Uh, I'll never again make as much money. Uh, as I did as a, uh, as a, as a peach-faced 30-year-old in London. But I got increasingly bored, and I discovered that the only time I was really happy during the day was after work, um, after, of course, these long, notorious 12-hour work days in, in, um, in banking. And I would be in a pub. This was when pubs still closed early. So I had one hour to have my dinner, have my pint, and have my cigar. And... I began to think about, well, what makes me happy in life? And I said, what I really enjoyed doing was reading. And it wasn't so much reading the Financial Times or your money magazine. It was much more reading, say, a biography of Stolypin or a book about Silver Age poetry. And I thought, well, maybe I should get paid to do this. So to make a long story short, 
um, I applied to graduate school, and Yale very kindly um, accepted me, despite my very advanced age of 31. Uh, all my relatives in Europe said that by the age of 30, you know, I was already well set in a career, and I should just buck up, and you know, it's only 30 more years till retirement. Um, and so I went to graduate school, and, and um, I was very lucky to end up at a place like Yale, because Yale, as, as you may know, well, at the time, was not necessarily one of the top places to do Russian history, which had its advantages, because there are very few graduate students there. Has, of course, it has a very good history department. But that forces you so to look outside of the realm of just Russian studies. Um, and as luck would have it, uh, I had a very I had a, a, an advisor with very Catholic interests, uh, Paul Bushkovich, although at the time he was really classified as a medievalist. Um, he knew a lot about 19th century history, which was my forte. And I was also very fortunate to work with uh, Jonathan Spence. Indeed, my minor field was um, in uh, Chinese history. Uh, <clears throat> so that's how I really happened on my dissertation topic, which was really, well, like all dissertations, very, very sort of specific and narrow. It looked at how Russians thought about Asia just before the Russo-Japanese War, um, period from 1895 to 1904. Now, one of my other professors at that time was a diplomatic historian, uh, Paul Kennedy, uh, and at that point, he had a lot of graduate students, and more, more to the point, he had a lot of money to send them abroad. So <laughs> thanks to Paul Kennedy's largesse, I was able to spend as much time as I wanted to in Russia. And I happened to happen there in 1993, which is just shortly after the various archives were opening. Um, so I was able to write sort of a diplomatic slash intellectual history of the outbreak of the Russo-Japanese War. Um, and... Um, that uh, well, that ended well. I mean, eventually, after long tribulations, it was it was published. Um, and meanwhile, uh, I was very lucky to get a job in Canada. Um, you never know where you're going to get a job, uh, and it's often a very long and, and agonizing process. Um, but I was very lucky to get a job in Brock University, just a small provincial university close to Niagara Falls. Um, by Canadian standards, it's actually in the tropics because it's in the, in the wine-growing district and a uh, very pleasant place to be. They let me basically do what I want to do, uh, which is completely unfashionable stuff like diplomatic military history um, with touches of intellectual history. Um, and they also let me go off to France uh, on sabbatical. So I can't complain. So here I am, uh, 12 years into Brock, um, recently having survived three years uh, agony as department chair, uh, but now enjoying my just reward on sabbatical. <laughs> that's, a, that's an absolutely terrific story. I, you know, I, there are not many Russian historians who have that sort of background. I would, I would go as far as to say there aren't any Russian historians who have that kind of background. So, Which is probably a good thing. Well, I don't know. I, you know, I was thinking about it. That's, uh, you know, bringing that kind of experience. I know that I worked in what, what we sometimes call here in America the real world for a time. And uh, in my teaching, I find it very valuable I, because I know what employers expect. And, uh, well, you know, you know it also, it also, it's also very useful as a professor to have links with, with the real world. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, I mean, you do realize, first of all, you do realize how incredibly blessed you are to be an academic. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that would go a long way towards um, making some of my colleagues a, a little less grumpy about, say, you know, having to attend committees occasionally uh, or occasionally being forced to teach something slightly outside of their field. So I think it's very good for people to, in fact, I think every graduate school should make it obligatory for graduate students to spend at least five years doing something completely, completely different. I think our, 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 uh, our field would be much better off for it. Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely certain of that. So uh, from your lips to God's ears. Uh, I want to ask you, uh, since you were, in the, you were in an armored corps, is that right? At, That's right, you, yes. Sorry, see, I want to talk about tanks, but I'm not going to do that because <laughs> I love tanks. <laughs> um, we can talk about that after the interview. But let's talk about how you came to write this book, Russian Orientalism. How, how did you come to write it? Well, completely, completely serendipitously. Um, I was going through that agonizing ritual of supplicating academic presses to take on this very unfashionable diplomatic history of the outbreak of the Russo-Japanese War. And I took it to Yale University Press. Um, I happened to be at Yale at the time, and I knew the editor, Jonathan Brent. Um, he looked at it, 
uh, and I called him up. I didn't hear from him, so I called him up, and the first words he said on the phone were, "Well, David, this is very interesting." So I knew at the I knew then right away that before he even went on that they weren't going to take it. <laughs> um, but he did say, "Come and see me, uh, and you know we'll make it publishable." And he said, "Well, David, the first thing you better do is take off all the footnotes." Well, damn it, I sweated over every one of those bloody footnotes. Um, so I wasn't about to do that. Um, eventually, it was taken by another press. Um, but meanwhile, I happened to run into Jonathan at a AAAS, well, the American Association for Slavic Studies conference. And he said, David, what about your book? And I said, well, you know, I, I really can't sort of remove all the footnotes and make it into a much more popular book. And then he looked at me and said, look, why don't you publish a book that I really want you to publish, which is how Russians more generally have thought about Asia. And so, lo and behold, even before I had a contract for my thesis, I had a contract for this book. That was back in 1990. Mm -hmm. uh, sorry, uh, back in 2000. Um, and in the intervening years, well, I had a few children uh, and, uh, of course, had to teach. Um, but I uh, managed to get the book written about eight years later. Yeah. But at that time, you weren't working in the restaurant or serving in an armored division or being a... a no, 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 no. At that okay, point, good. yeah. I, yeah, you're a person of many talents, but I was, it's incredible. So, um, so let's actually talk about the book in itself. Uh, you actually, uh, you begin by talking about, uh, the kind of, um, long-term relationship. That is the sort of in the earliest period relationship between the Russians and, uh, again, it's hard to talk, it's hard to say what we should, it's hard, it's hard to name these people because from the Russian point of view, they, they aren't Asian or Oriental or anything like that in the early modern period. There's something else. Um, but why don't you just talk a little bit about, I don't know, Kiev and Rus and, and, and Muscovite Russia and their relationship to parts eastern. Yes, and of course, I, I have to preface this because I come from a country that has a very large Ukrainian community. So, of course, I have to preface this by saying that um, these are people that would eventually become partially Russian, partially Ukrainian and, and whatever. But to make matters simple, I'll speak, speak of them as the Rus. Uh, these were a fairly sedentary people, um, I mean, very closely linked to the rest of Europe, in fact, European, who at the time, and by the time I mean the 8th, 9th, 10th centuries, um, inhabited the forests right on the edge of the great inner Asian steppe. And as a result, they were in daily contact uh, or in regular contact with various Turkic um, sort of nomadic horsemen who inhabited the steppe. And um, as the Rus eventually became Christianized and developed a literature, um, a great deal of the literature was about this almost daily interaction with these people of the steppe. Sometimes hostile, um, very often not hostile. Um, of course, violence, well, as anybody who reads the newspaper knows, violence makes much makes the headlines much more readily than, than, than Pacific um, events. Uh, and so what the chronicles, the chronicles that were kept by these medieval monks, these early Christian monks in monasteries of Kiev and Rus, spoke a lot, uh, was about, about wars or about um, uh, uh, violent encounters. Um, but these people also, the Kiev and Rus also intermarried uh, and traded with these people of the steppe. And so over the centuries, they developed a relationship that was both symbiotic, uh, but also occasionally hostile. Um, until, of course, by about this, and, and I should preface this by saying that this interaction was, was relatively stable. Occasionally, um, the, the people of the forest, uh, the Slavs, who were basically uh, tillers of the land and, um, and looked for, for products of the forest, um, interacted with these nom nomads. Um, their battles occasionally ended in a draw, occasionally victory for one or the other, but it was a relatively balanced relationship until suddenly a very violent new people surged in from inner Asia. And these, of course, were the descendants of Genghis Khan's Mongols, uh, who in three or four short years overran virtually all of what is now Russia and Ukraine. Um, and in fact, nearly, nearly got to the gates of Vienna uh, until they, well, until they, uh, we don't know why, but until they turned back. So for about two and a half centuries, the um, descendants of these Kievan Rus uh, were under the sway of what they call the Mongol yoke, the Tarskaya Iga. Um, 
and only really cast off that yoke or became independent um, sometime in the 14th or 15th century, depending on how you define independence. They finally renounced Mongol rule uh, around 1480. Um, so what you have is a people that initially came into contact and had intimate contact with various people from inner Asia, people who were racially distinct, perhaps, uh, but intermarried with them. Um, and some people would argue that this had a strong influence. Other would argue that's not so, but that's a, that's a debate. Uh, that, that's another debate. Um, but eventually were conquered by people from inner Asia and um, then threw off that yoke and then slowly entered modernity and became the Russia that we all know and love. Mm -hmm. So how did uh, that, this is where you brought us roughly to the 16th century, and this is the era of many of our listeners will know um, uh, Ivan the Terrible, but also uh, sort of the beginnings of Europeanization prior to the 16th century, the Russians had not had um, contact with, uh, I guess I would call it uh, Metal Europa, you know, the, the, these are the, the German lands, um, and then parts for yes. the West. How did, how did this impact the way in which the Muscovites come Russians uh, thought about these uh, steppe peoples? Well, this is a very interesting point, is that um, <clears throat> the, the Russians really saw themselves as in between Europe and Asia as really not not part of either uh in fact there's not saying that much woe has been brought to us both by the um by the turk and by the german catholic or by the by the roman pope um so russians really didn't assim didn't really think of asians the same way that that europeans did of course they thought uh, they, they developed an increasingly hostile view of of islamic and most of the their asian neighbors at that point were were islamic um because the church told them to um, but they really didn't think of Asians in the same way that, that Europeans did. Uh, Muscovites were, uh, as, as you all know, while well, this is a lot of Europe, uh, you know, were intensely insular people um, who saw themselves as besieged by unbelievers, um, both from the Islamic East and South, as well as from the Catholic West. Um, and you really, I, I really don't get a sense that, that they considered one to be more evil or less hostile than, than the other. Uh, it's really only in the, with, with, with fate, with Peter's slow import of Western ideas, um, that, that Russians really begin to distinguish between themselves uh, as part of Europe and Asia. Mm -hmm. I think that's an extraordinarily subtle and, uh, really quite excellent characterization of the Muscovite mind because they, they did feel that they were besieged on all sides. And then they also felt that they were superior to almost everybody else. This is perhaps a consequence of their own insularity. But anyway, let's talk about Peter. What is um, the importation of these uh, really now European ideas into the Russian elite? Um, how, what impact does it have on Russian views of these steppe peoples? Well, Russians now begin to identify much more closely with Europeans and um, in part because Peter also imports sort of the, the Western way of looking at the world um, academically and culturally. Um, and by the same token, imports the Western view of looking at Asia. Now, what's very interesting is that um, Russia becomes Westernized, um, for want of a better term, during the 18th century, um, late 17th, but really the 18th century. And this is precisely a time, um, I think at no time before or afterwards, has the West looked more positively on Asia. Remember, this is the age of Voltairean Sinophilia um, and of Chinoiserie, of a fascination with the East. Um, during the Enlightenment, people became, in the West, became increasingly skeptical uh, or even um, uh dismissive of the Catholic Church uh, and of, of Western Christianity in general. Um, and they looked to, to other sources of spirituality, uh, including Islam um, and, and even Confucianism, um, perhaps as other models that might be equally valid. It was an intensely cosmopolitan age. Um, so it was precisely at this time that Russia began to look at the East that, that, uh, through Western eyes, that the West looked at the East through very positive eyes. So indeed, for much of the 18th century, um, although Russians, of course, fought many wars with the Turks, uh, almost, uh, uh, well, uh, there they, they were clashes, never quite came to war, but also had a fairly 
difficult relationship with the uh, with, with the Qing Empire. Uh, but nevertheless, culturally, um, Russians looked on the East as something fairly fairly positive mm-hmm. uh, and praised what Chinese learning um, and and even Islamic learning uh, uh, for uh, well for providing fonts of wisdom uh, that were perhaps absent in the um, uh, in, in the tired West. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that bears adding, and you, of course, mentioned it in the book, is that uh, we shouldn't just speak of the assimilation of these European ideas by Russians, that in many cases these were actually Europeans, people like Catherine, she was a German. So uh, it, it's it's um, they brought these ideas with them, if you see what I mean. Well, not not only was Catherine uh, or Sophia Anhat Sepst German, but a lot of the, most of the members of the Academy of Sciences that Peter had established um, well, it was established shortly after his death, um, but most of its first members were, were German. The languages used were, were German and uh, and Latin. Uh, and in fact, uh, one of the things that fascinated me was that when universities were first established uh, in Russia, um, the language of instruction very often tended to be Latin. Mm-hmm. Now you can imagine some some poor kid from uh, you know from Moscow going to university and and everything is is in Latin uh, and. Their professors, well, the only other languages they spoke were, were German, perhaps French. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. So um, one of the narrative threads in the book is, in fact, the institutional development of uh, Orientology uh, in Russia. And this is related to a kind of broader theme that is captured in the title of the book, and maybe we should spend a few minutes talking about it. Um, and this is the idea of Orientalism. Could you talk a little bit about uh, its ancestry and meaning to I guess, uh, academic culture. What, does, what is Orientalism and who thought it up? Well, I'm, I'm not quite sure when exactly the, the term came, to, came into existence, but Orientalism in the 19th century it was a fairly neutral term, which meant two things. Um, artistically, it meant a, a very specific art school that, that was fascinated by the, the light and the exoticism of primarily the Near East. It flourished in the middle of the 19th century was basically an outgrowth of Romanticism, but more important, Orientalism uh, or Orientology um, was the study of the East, often the Near East, but but often the East in general. Uh, And in the 19th century, it was tended to be the preserve of very erudite, um, generally fairly eccentric men um, who studied terribly difficult languages, um, many of them dead, like Sanskrit. uh, or, or say, uh, or say, Mongolian, Mandarin, uh, and the like. Um, they tend to be very reclusive, reclusive men um, who read manuscripts and um, uh, woodblock books and the like. Uh, and they were, well, basically every university worth its salt by the turn of the 20th century, of course, had to have a, a few orientologists. Um, but it was really a fairly neutral term. And uh, unless you were terribly bright or you intended to go into government service or become a missionary, you really paid very little attention to these people. Uh, they were a necessary part of any great research university's faculty. Um, and this was all fine and good until the 1970s when a, um, a, a Palestinian, a, a Christian Palestinian, um, who was then professor of comparative literature at uh, New York, at uh, Columbia University, um, wrote a fairly polemic book called Orientalism. Um, this, of course, is the late Edward Said. Uh, now, his ideas weren't terribly original, um, but um, he put them in a um, way in, in, a, in a way that was fairly convincing uh, and argued that, well, uh, people who study the East from the West do so basically to conquer and to oppress the East. And so by the late um, 70s and the early 80s, the term Orient, Orientalism or Orientology uh, or even the word Orient came to uh, have a very, very pejorative um, definition uh, um, uh, or rather air to it. And as a result, um, various departments, which had proudly been called departments of Oriental letters, were suddenly rechristened Department of Near Eastern Studies uh, or of Asian Studies or what have you. Um, but uh, until until fairly recently, the word Orientalism um, has really been uh, a four-letter word um, in the academy. Um, I look at it much more neutrally. Um, for one thing, is that uh, I I I think 
uh, Said uh, did something very important, um, exploring the link between knowledge and power. Uh, he, or, he argues that Orientalism is part of the Western apparatus to basically impose its will on the East. Um, in other words, just at the same time that that French, British, German um, uh, officers were conquering uh, lands uh, offshore and colonies, um, their uh, their linguists, uh, their jurists, uh, and even their historians uh, were part and parcel about the, of the same process of colonialism or of imperialism. Um, now, there's something very wrong with that um, argument. Yes, of course. Uh, Orientologists very often served a stage that was also acquiring colonies abroad in the 19th and even in the 20th century. Um, on the other hand, um, you don't sacrifice your life studying something terribly difficult uh, because you have an intrinsic dislike of those people, or at least most people don't. Um, I can think of one or two people in our field, which are remain nameless. Um, but I mean, you, don't, you know, you, you don't study Russian to become a Russo folk. Oh yeah, no, that's ex that's exactly right. I try to explain that. To people as well. You're very, you're very, you're very diplomatic. Maybe you should have become a diplomat. I don't know. <laughs> that's a, I would have named names, but not. That's just me. You know? but anyway, no, I thought that was again a terrific characterization of exactly what uh, Orientalism was, and that is. Um, an academic institution, an academic practice by which people studied things that were from the Western perspective in the East. Uh, and then, of course, it becomes politicized uh, by Said and um, the entire, I don't know, American, I was going to put some adjective before that, but some sort of establishment. I don't know what sort of establishment it was. But yeah, Although it's interesting that there has been, you know, all these things go through hats and um, there has been a bit of a reaction to that. Uh, I think people are now beginning to realize. Robert Irwin, for example, wrote a wonderful book um, a couple of years ago. He's a, now he's an he would probably call himself an Orientalist, um, but he's a he's basically the, the Times Literary Supplements editor for Near Eastern uh, books uh -huh. book reviews, and he, among others, has has sort of written a riposte to to Said. So I'm I. I until very recently, that was really a given wisdom. But I, I think there's a bit of a, of, of a reaction to that now because people realize that perhaps this view was a bit one-sided. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, I see. So, uh, but nonetheless, you chose it for the, the title of your book. It's in the title of your book. Um, and uh, how do you mean it in the Russian context? What does it mean in the Russian context? Well, uh, I mean it both in the cultural and the... I, I, I deliberately used the term Orientalism. Um, because it is a fairly vague term, and I really wanted to encompass both academic and artistic perceptions uh, of, of the East, because um, I think there's really no one way that you can characterize the way that Russians looked at the East. Uh, and I really didn't want to limit myself to just one source of texts, like, say, travel accounts uh, or purely academic words. I really wanted to sort of take a very broad brush approach uh, to how Russians viewed the Orient. And you succeeded that marvelously. So, so I, I basically mean Orientalism in the traditional sense, um, studying or looking at the East, at the Orient. Uh, the Orient, of course, is, well, that's where the sun rises. So everything that is to the East of us um, or to the East of Russia. And to make things very complicated, of course, you know, what is the East for Russians? Moscow, after all, geographically lies to the East of, of, of Istanbul and Jerusalem. Um, even though it is technically in, in Europe. Mm -hmm. So uh, we, we left off our story uh, in the 18th century, and this is kind of at the birth of serious Russian, and I put Russian in air quotes, Russian study of the East, because the original faculty members at, at, at Peter's Academy, and then a little bit later, were Germans. So tell us a little bit about the origins of um, Eastern studies, so to say, Oriental studies in Russia in the 18th century. Well, there are basically two currents, um, which is what makes um, Russian Orientalism um, or Orientology, by that I mean the, the academic study of the East, fairly unique. Um, the very first people to sort of study the East, um, like Gottlieb, uh, Siegfried, Bayer, uh, and the like, um, were basically Germans who were imported, along with many other German scholars, by Peter the Great, and these people tended to be very interested in Russia um, because they saw in Russia many traces of its Tatar and its Mongol heritage. So these were people who had studied, say, Chinese or Sanskrit or the like, came to Russia because there they could learn um, through archaeological finds or manuscripts, they could learn more about the East. 
uh, but really an import from the East. But slightly later, there was a parallel phenomenon of people um, who either were themselves Eastern in the sense that they came from Russia's Eastern nationalities, or who actually came from the East, uh, who also became scholars. And I'm thinking here of people, uh, and this is really more developed in the 19th century as Russian orientology really began to develop. It, it really began to develop in universities, um, in places like Kazan. Kazan um, is a city that is about 600 kilometers east of Moscow on the Volga River, but it is really a city that was one of the last Tatar strongholds, and it has a very large Tatar or sort of Islamic Turkic community still very much to this day. Um, and the university there, in right at the beginning of the 19th century, had a very strong faculty of orientology, which was developed basically to train administrators and uh, others who could deal with Russia's eastern nationalities and, and also beyond. It was quite natural to to get people, uh, I mean, the people who know those languages best were not Russians who'd been trained in the East, but people actually from the East. Um, so many language instructors at Kazan were actually ta native Tatars or, uh, uh, or Mongolians, Buryats and the like. Um, and the key figure in the early 19th century for the development of orientology at Kazan um, was a man named um, Mirza Alexander Kasimovich Kazimbek. You can tell sort of by this sort of mixed Russianized version that this fellow was really a hybrid. He was born in Iran uh, or in Persia, as it was called then, and um, his father had been exiled to Astrakhan, uh, his son. Uh, Alexander Kasimovich converted to Presbyterianism uh, and eventually was, by a roundabout way, was drafted into Russian service and ended up teaching uh, at Kazan's university. Um, but here was a man whose academic training really had been um, uh, in the East, in the Islamic world, in, in Islamic madrasas and the like. Um, a lot of the other early Russian orientologists also were essentially trained in the East. It was very typical in the 19th century, really until the late 19th century, um, whereas people who, say, studied engineering, medicine, um, uh, Western philology or the like would be sent off to, say, Göttingen uh, or Heidelberg uh, or Paris or Oxford. Um, people who were trained as orientologists at Kazan and then at St. Petersburg in the latter part of the 19th century would be sent off to the East. Um, they would be sent off, say, to Peking, where the Orthodox Church had sort of a, a mission, or they might be sent off to Constantinople um, or, or other places um, in the Ottoman Empire, uh, basically to learn uh, Arabic, Turkish, Chinese, Mongolian, Tibetan, um, really um, uh, on the ground, as it were. Mm -hmm. uh, and so these, in addition to learning languages, of course, these people also assimilated um, Eastern uh, or, or, or uh, Asian traditions, academic traditions, and very much, very much patriots of these academic traditions. Many of the orientologists of the early to mid-19th century um, really did not have much contact uh, or much interest in, in Western scholarship of the East because they considered that Western scholars were, were dilettantes, whereas these people who spent five to ten years in the East uh, knew that field much, much better and much more intimately and also, I should add, also had also thought much more highly of Eastern learning than they thought of Western learning. Um, so you really have two elements of Russian Orientalism in Orientology in the 19th century, which is the Western academic way of looking at things, and certainly the academic structure. I mean, the whole university structure, as in America, in Russia, was imported from, from Germany in the 19th century. Um, but its orientology branch also had a very strong influence of, of, of Eastern academic elements. So it is really sort of a, a hybrid between the East and the West. Mm -hmm. I see. So how did the Russian government use the graduates of these programs and the academics who taught in them? What was the purpose of studying the East in this period? That was a very, um, um, a very controversial question. A number of orientologists and certainly a number of university administrators felt that one should study the East, um, well, for, for raison d'etat, to have colonial administrators who could, say, speak Tatar or Boryat or Kalmyk or the like, or to have 
diplomats who are well versed in in Mandarin or or or, per, or Farsi or or, uh, or or Arabic or the like. Um, and so these people were being trained um, for for government service in the east. Um, but um, there were also people who, uh, although they were funded by 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 the state, um, studied it for out of out of intrinsic interest. But really, the, the state itself really wanted to have a cadre of trained administrators. Uh, who uh, knew the East's languages, cultures, laws, and ways. Remember that, that Russia at the time, and, and Bob Cruz has a wonderful way of, uh, you know, does, does this very nicely in his book uh, about um, the interaction between the Russian state and, and, the, uh, and its Islamic su- subjects. Remember that the Russian Empire in the 19th century still tended to let its Eastern minorities very often to be ruled according to their own traditions. Um, but it still needed administrators, Russian administrators, Russian nationals, who could nevertheless supervise those traditions. Um, administrators who could, say, advise the governor general of Turkestan uh, or the governor of Western Siberia or the like, um, you know, really how Sharia works uh, or how um, Mongol common law works, uh, all the better to administer these subjects. So, so the state really wanted to train servants. Mm-hmm. And what about the church? The church also trained a certain number of people to do this. Uh, was there missionary activity that was related to orientology? Well, this again is, is a complicated question because, yes, the church was interested, um, occasionally was interested in training um, missionaries. Now, I should, as a caveat, I should stress that the Orthodox Church, at least in Russia, traditionally has, has a much weaker missionary tradition um, than the Western Church. Um, there was basically an attitude of live and let live. Um, certainly in the 19th century, um, there were the occasional missionaries, but um, even in Kazan, which established a, a missionary division, at least at the Theological Academy uh, in the mid-19th century, even there, most of the emphasis was really on converting so-called old believers, in other words, Orthodox who had um, strayed, if you will, um, or had refused to accept reforms uh, much earlier and were sort of seen as heretics, um, as opposed to, say, trying to convert uh, Muslims or or, or, or Buddhists. Um, so it was a very weak effort. There were some people who studied Arabic um, or who studied Tatar or who studied Mongolian, uh, and some people occasionally did go out to places like Irkutsk, uh, to try and convert the, the so-called heathen um, and so-called pagans. Um, but these people suffered from disinterest uh, and really also um, dislike. Um, it, it was slightly a sense. This reminds me a lot of the story that when I was when I was in the army, I was um, uh, I was into to, uh, in reconnaissance and the function of reconnaissance, like on reconnaissance, is to find the enemy. In the 1970s, of course, that was the evil empire. Well, I happened to be a Russian studies major, and as a result, on my bookshelf in barracks, I had a lot of books on Russian history, <laughs> mostly biographies of, of Russian Tsars. And I remember one colonel during inspection who took me to task for having these, these books on, um, on Russian history. And he said, why do you have these books? And he, he picked up one, which was a biography of Nicholas I. Uh, and he said, why are you reading these books about a Russian king? Are you a communist? Um, it was the same with people who studied Islam, uh, who studied Arabic or studied Buddhism. Um, the more you studied it, uh, the less you were trusted by your, by your own core religionists, even if you were a very devout um, Orthodox monk or priest. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, uh, let's move away from the um, kind of where the rubber meets the road, if you'll pardon the cliche, kinds of orientology, that is to train administrators or to train um, um, missionaries, Oriental themes sort of leach out into Russian culture and Russian letters, Russian style. Can you talk a little bit about this? Yes, very much like Orientology as an academic discipline, um, this fascination with Oriental styles really came from the West, first with Chinoiserie and Turkey in the reign of Catherine the Great, and then Really, the the, the uh, one of its one of its strongest waves was in the Romantic era, just as Byron in the West um, popularized um, Near Eastern themes in literature, and as um, <clears throat> uh, 
copyright Near Eastern themes in, in Western painting. This this sort of vogue also hit Russians. Now, the big difference between Russians and Westerners was that for Westerners to become acquainted with the East, you had to travel away. You had to go from, say, Paris or London to um, to the Ottoman Empire uh, or beyond, whereas for Russians, it was much nearer at home. Uh, and a lot of, especially in the 1830s, 1840s, as Russia was mired in the Caucasus, uh, a lot of people, intellectual figures, uh, and in part, uh, partially because they were intellectual, sometimes they were uh, exiled to the Caucasus, uh, like Yermontov, um, uh, people there uh, became fascinated by Oriental themes. Now, these were literate people. They had read the way that Westerners had described the East, and here was the East very much closer to home. Um, but they found it, it fascinating, uh, fascinating for its very different, uh, somehow more colorful lifestyle, certainly much more interesting, more colorful, um, freer, and to their eyes more honest um, than the um, very refined ways of, of, of St. Petersburg in the early 19th century. Now, what's very interesting about this turn to the East is that um, Eastern themes in Russian art and Russian literature sort of begin to decline sort of at the end of the so-called golden age, really that, that first fluorescence of Russian literature in the age of Pushkin, 1830s, 1840s. But toward the end of the 19th century, uh, in, um, uh, in the so-called Silver Age, sort of a rebirth of, of Russian letters, um, Russians, again, after having been, been very interested in, in their own issues, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, all, all write about, you know, mostly about um, issues closer to home. By the end of the 19th century, so again, a rebirth. Um, at this point, Russians are more and more conscious of a very strong Asian element in their own culture. Uh, and so you have people um, like Andrei Bialy, who writes a novel about St. Petersburg, in which the, um, the lead character um, is a bureaucrat, a very westernized bureaucrat, but who has, has Tatar ancestry. Um, and his culmination, of course, is a very famous poem by um, Alexander Bloch, Scythians, Scythians, sorry, in which he says, you know, yes, we are Scythians and Asians too. Um, very much a rejection of the West. Uh, Russians who celebrate their Asian roots to a certain extent um, and also use it as a way to differentiate themselves from the West. Mm -hmm. Certainly people who had um, um, uh, a more entrepreneurial bent very much fed on the traditional Western cliche of uh, scratch Tatar, uh, scratch a Russian and you'll find a Tatar, um, by capitalizing on it, by sort of celebrating that uh, in the West. And uh, here I'm thinking, of, of, of course, of, of Diaghilev and his uh, uh, Ballet Russe, um, who in the early 20th century, um, you know, uh, staged um, operas and ballets with very exotic themes that we really sort of, in, in Paris, um, and in the Occident, very much stressed Russia's uh, soi-disant uh, oriental element. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about something our uh, listeners may have heard of, and uh, I'm certainly interested in it because um, my dissertation advisor wrote one of the early works on it, and that is the thing called Eurasianism. Could you talk a little uh, bit about its origins and its relations to orientology and orientalism? Well, Eurasianism, as you can tell by the, by the word, is a combination of, the, of Europe and Asia. And it is a Russian idea that uh, Russia is sort of an intermediate world between the West and the East, a distinctive world that, that combines, that somehow combines both elements of Europe and of Asia, uh, but is also a world apart. It, it is basically, um, although the argument is that Russia combines both East and West, it is basically meant as a rejection of the West. It is basically an expression of suspicion and dislike of the West. It has its roots in uh, a much more, a much better known um, intellectual current in mid 19th century Russia that, that some of your listeners are probably familiar with, uh, Slavophilism, um, uh, which is basically the idea that Russia, although it is Europe and Christian, um, is fundamentally different from, say, the uh, Roman and German traditions, uh, um, but it's, it's part of a more spiritual, a less materialist, a more paternalistic culture of the Byzantine Orthodox um, East. 
Um, now, the big difference between, between Eurasianism and Slavophilism, both, of course, reject the West, um, the Romano-Germanic West with its parliaments, um, its democracy, um, its private sector and the like. Um, uh, Eurasianism basically argues that Russia, well, it's not, it's not really the links with the, with the Byzantine East that we're interested in, but really the links with the, well, with, with the, with, with inner Asia East, with, with the world of the nomads, um, with the much more patriarchal order, uh, and one that rejects the sterile materialism of the West. Um, uh, now, this was a very pure movement that was adhered to by um, a group of very learned um, exiles uh, in Prague uh, and eventually elsewhere in Europe in the 20s and 30s, um, a very distinguished linguist, uh, a Prince Bretzkoy, um, a um, musicologist, uh, a geographer, eventually a man named George Ranowski, who, who ended up his, his years as a, as a Yale um, history professor, but... Um, uh, he started out arguing basically that the, the Asian element in Russia was very strong. Now, really, until the 90, until the 80s, um, Eurasianism was really a backwater of Russian intellectual history. There was the odd article. If you sort of did a bibliography of Eurasianism, you might find uh, one or two articles uh, in German. There's one in French. <laughs> there's one in Dutch. But that was about it. Uh, and a couple in American, of course, or in English. Um, but suddenly... In the late, in the late uh, sort of 1880, uh, sorry, 1980s, um, as communism became increasingly discredited in the Soviet Union and people were losing their intellectual moorings in Russia, some people, uh, there was a revival of Eurasianism in Russia. And some people began to argue, well, yes, you know, um, perhaps we're not Marxist, um, but we are still unique and distinct. Uh, and it is our Eurasian element that makes us unique and distinct. And... Very interestingly, Eurasianism now has become a movement of the of, of the far right. Now, what do I mean by the far right in Russia? These things are very confusing because um, the Communist Party of the Russian Federation um, on the Russian political spectrum really is on the right. Uh, and in fact, even the head of the Communist Party now, uh, Gennady Zyuganov, um, very provenly writes of, of Eurasianism with the idea that Russia is essentially essentially has some very strong Asian roots. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I want to emphasize it doesn't mean that Russia sees itself as Asia, but it, it does have Asian roots, and that is that sets it apart from the West. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about that. This is a little bit beyond the bounds of the pages of your book, but how do Russians today think about Asia or the Orient? How do they talk about it? What, where do they put themselves in the... Uh, Europe, Russia, Asia frame? Well, of course, it depends which Russian you're speaking to. If you're speaking to, say, a policeman in Khabarovsk or in Vladivostok, right on the Chinese border, uh, or if you're talking to a soldier in Chechnya, um, they will think of Asians as Jotielitsi, uh, yellow faces, or Chorni, or blacks. Um, they will think of them in very, very negative terms. But if you speak to intellectuals um, in the cities, um, they tend to think of Asia a, a bit more positively. There is really no single way to characterize the way that Russians think of, of Asia. It's sort of a, a, a very, they're very mixed feelings. I mean, my, my poor, um, uh, my, my very friend Nikos Frisidis, uh, who's a who's a Greek, uh, okay, okay, originally of Pontic origin, um, and I were in graduate school together um, in Russia in the in 1990s. And um, typically, uh, the the policeman in the in the subways would very often stop him and ask for his papers. Now, the minute he was Greek, they were best of friends because he was fellow Orthodox, but they thought that he was he was a Caucasian. So there's a strong element of racism. But on the other hand, there is some sort of sympathy for the East as well, and Russians feel themselves a bit vulnerable vis-a-vis -vis the West. After all, they, I mean, to put it in, in starkly Reagan-esque terms, uh, they lost the Cold War. Uh -huh. um, and so there's sort of a, a sense of, of bitterness to a certain extent, especially among more patriotic Russians, towards the West. And one of the refuges is thinking, well, we are not like the West. We have more in common, say, the Chinese, the Indians, um, and, uh, and, and the Iranians. And there's a certain perverse 
identification with, with nations that are very anti-Western. So the more anti-American or the, the greater their hostilities between, say, Iran and, and the U.S. Uh, or China and the U.S., the more attractive those countries become to Russians because the way of sort of summing themselves at the supposed victors in the Cold War. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What is the state, I don't know if you can answer this question, but what is the state of orientology today in the Russian Federation? Are the faculties strong and do they get students and, you know, is it, uh, is it a thriving sort of thing? Or is it, or is it like foreign languages in universities in the United States? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. Yes, we first talked about that. Yes. Um, well, Russians are much less afraid of learning languages than, than Americans are. That's 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 a good thing. Um, but Orientology really has a mixed legacy in Russia, um, and it's really the best way to understand Orientology's mixed legacy in Russia is to go to its two centers, St. Petersburg and Moscow. In St. Petersburg, it's a very rarefied intellectual atmosphere. They're on an old grand duke, an old uh, faded Grand Ducal Palace, just down from the Hermitage, and there you have people who read old manuscripts and are, are sort of take a very bookish, intellectual approach to Orientology. But like all the Russian academics, these people do it out of a love for learning, not out of uh, an expectation of getting, a, you know, earning a salary. Um, if you go to Moscow, uh, there instead of staying wearing wearing frayed shirts um, uh, or severe skirts. Um, everybody there wears Hugo Boss suits uh, and has <laughs> constantly cell phones. They're very much more linked to the real world. And that is because um, ties between uh, Orientology and um, Russian intelligence until the, until really the collapse of the Soviet Union were very intimate. It is no coincidence that uh, Evgeny Markovich Primakov, um, his career took him from the Oriental Institute and from being instructed to being head of the, um, well, one of the successors of the KGB. Uh, and then for, for a brief while under Yeltsin, his and, and, and prime minister. But here's a man who basically whose career was, was sort of half in intelligence and half in orientology. Um, well, um, there are, of course, still links with the state, but I, I would say that orientology is still doing fairly well um, uh, in, in Russia, judging by, by the publications that are coming out and, and by interest that, that people have in it. Uh, possibly not as strong as it was in, in the Soviet era, uh, because then the regions of state to support orientology were much, much stronger. Are, are the orientologists in Moscow and Petersburg and other places, are they actually uh, from uh, Central Asian parts and Eastern parts, or are they ethnic Russians? Um, most are ethnic Russians, but there are there are some from from other parts. I mean, I have to say that certainly when you go into the um, Institute of Oriental Studies in Moscow uh, or in Saint Petersburg, um, most of the people there have Russian names. But but you do see names on the lists um, of of say Tatar or of, uh, of of Near Eastern origin, but they are now dominated really by um, by Russians. Mm -hmm. Back yeah, let me let me ask another question. I'm not sure you can uh, answer, but I'm I'm interested in it, and I imagine a lot of people who listen to the show will be interested in it. Uh, well, has uh, Said's Orientalism been um, translated into Russian and various Turkic languages? Uh, it's been translated into Russian very recently. Uh, I think about four years ago. Um, it's uh, it's 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 regarded fairly critically. Um, yeah, that, fact, was, that was my yeah, that was my next question. How 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 has it been received? Well, very um, in, in in a very hostile way. Um, the Russians, of course, well, like like any great power, Russians see themselves as having a, a, a special a special relationship with, with with those people that it that it comes to rule over, um, and um, by 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 the same token, by by uh, its orientology is the same way. Now, what is interesting about Russian orientology is that in the early 20s, um, when, when Lenin um, seemed to uh, fantasize about a special relationship between the oppressed Russians and the oppressed colonial peoples of the East, the orientologists, most of them trained, of course, in the imperial tradition, um, argued that Western orientology marched hand in hand with imperialism. Um, but Soviet orientology, of course, was, was underlaid with Marxist sympathy for um, the oppressed colonial peoples of, of the West. So Russians have always, Russian orientology, even in Soviet times, always 
tended to see itself as very distinct from Western orientology and much more respectful of Asian people. Um, I, I won't go into whether that's true or not, but I will make one observation, uh, and this is hardly an original idea. Vera Tolls also uh, actually actually uh, did some very interesting work um, and, and discovered really that uh, there's a direct link between Edward Said's Orientalism uh, and um, and the Soviet view, because uh, Said, of course, did not read Russian. But one of the texts that he on which he very strongly based, uh, to put it diplomatically, uh, his thesis was written by um, an Arab uh, who had read Russian Soviet texts about Orientology. Um, and I want to quote, if I may, just this is the way that the great Soviet encyclopedia of 1951 described Orientology. Quote, reflecting the colonialist, racist worldview of the European and American bourgeoisie. From the very beginning, bourgeois orientology diametrically opposed the civilizations of the so-called West with those of the East, slanderously declaring that Asian peoples are racially inferior, somehow primordially backward, incapable of determining their own fates. Bourgeois orientology entirely subordinates the study of the East to the colonial politics of the imperialist powers. Now, from some Foucault, such uh, <laughs> other and some other fancy terms, and there you have Edward Said. <laughs> that was uh, that was uh, that was something else, David. That was something else. <laughs> Let me tell you what. Um, so, uh, David, we've taken up a lot of your time today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Um, let me uh, close the interview with our traditional final question, and that is, what are you working on now? What's your next project after going down to the cafe and having some pastis or something and, I don't know, relaxing? Which, which I have a lot to do, actually. You know, it's, it's 5.03 and happy hour. I just started three minutes ago. <laughs> so, but but I, I still have to, it last till 7 o'clock, so I don't have to rush. Okay. Right yeah. So uh, what do you do? But um, I, I'm here basically to begin two things. Um, one is um, all the summers that I spent in uh, Helsinki, Moscow, Petersburg, writing the Orientalism book. And meanwhile, Marie, my wife, was uh, raising uh, our one and then two kids. Um, she's a specialist in antique jewelry, and she has always wanted to write a book about imperial Russian jewelry. Um, a lot of books about Fabergé in the market, probably about 200, but none about all the other jewelers. Um, she doesn't read Russian, so that's where my job comes in, is to help her do the research. Uh, so that's one project. Uh, probably a coffee table book called Beyond Fabergé, Imperial Russian Jewelry. Um, the other big project I'm involved in right now, and this is the one for which I'm, I currently uh, am enjoying the largesse of the, the, the very aptly named SHRP, the Social Science Humanities Research Council, which gives you three-year research grants. Um, and I'm writing a book called Russia's Great Game. Um, <clears throat> the um, uh, or, uh, <clears throat> Zara's Conquest of Central Asia. Wow. Just um, basically an archival study of how Russians um, thought about and went about uh, that, that Russian expansion in Central Asia, largely in the, in the latter part of the 19th century, you know, the conquest of the so-called stans. Uh, well, that's a much longer-term project, which will take me to archives both here in France and in, in England this year, but eventually also back to Moscow, St. Petersburg, and, and uh uh, God willing, Tashkent, uh, uh, <clears throat> which has a fantastic trove of the Governor General's archives in, in Turkestan. Um, I should say there's also a third project that is also keeping me up at nights. Um, and uh, I know you've had, as one of your guests, uh, John Steinberg. Well, John and I, as well as a number of other people, are collaborating on a major reevaluation of the First World War, um, a project basically called Russia's Great War and Revolution. And Together with uh, a fellow Canadian, David McDonald, a Brit and a Russian, um, we are editing the volumes on the diplomatic history of, well, Russia's, uh, Russia during the First World War uh, and up to the Civil War. So those are three things that are, that are likely to keep me busy for the next, um, well, for the next uh, decade or so uh, when I'm not at a cafe. Yeah, I was going to say yeah. that, that might keep you busy for the next century or so. At least if you're me, it would take me a century to work through all those projects. But, you know, then again, I haven't done all of the things you've done. So uh, anyway, we've been talking to um, David Schimmelpenick-Vanderwey today about his terrific new book, Russian Orientalism. 
Asia in the Russian mind, from Peter the Great to the immigration. I've really enjoyed talking to Dave to David. Thanks for being on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. Okay, all right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with David Schimmelpenick van der Oy about his new book, Russian Orientalism, Asia in the Russian Mind from Peter the Great to the Immigration. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week. Thank you.